Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> We've been looking in the book of Habakkuk, and I hope you'll join me there in your Bible. I hope you're in the habit of bringing your Bible with you. It's important to learn to move through the book, find our way to the various passages, and uh, learn to use it. It's our chief weapon. I want to begin this morning <clears throat> walking with you through Habakkuk. Some of you have been here with us, and this will be kind of review for you. Some of you may be new, and it may help kind of put together the flow of the book, because as Habakkuk looks on his nation, and he sees the corruption, he sees the evil, he sees perversion on every hand, he cries out to God to bring judgment and to purify that nation. And as often happens, God's way of answering that prayer is not quite what he had in mind, because God's plan in answer to that prayer is to bring the Chaldeans, which is essentially the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, to bring the Assyrian army, or the Chaldean army, excuse me, to overthrow the nation and to carry those people into 70 years of captivity. When this plan is revealed to Habakkuk, he reels in terror. He can't believe that God would use a more wicked nation to judge the Jewish nation. But of course, we always want to make sin and evil something that we can measure on a scale, whereas God says that if you're involved in it, you're as guilty as if you committed all of it. James tells us if we break one command, we've broken the entire law. It's not like because, and I've done a lot of work with people in prisons, and I've always noticed that prisoners can be a murderer, but at least they're not a child molester. And of course, the child molester says, well, I'm not a murderer, and they always have an excuse, I'm not as bad as the next guy. The reality is, evil's evil. And evil is contrary to the plan and the purpose of God. And so as Habakkuk wrestles with the problem of what is facing his nation, and I believe the book of Habakkuk is very relevant to the time in which you and I are living, uh, I don't even remember so much talk of nuclear war or the possibility of nuclear war. You know, I lived back in the day in the 50s when we did the get under your desk because the Russians are going to nuke us. And I'm hearing more now than I think I ever heard then about the potential of nuclear war. Whatever may be on our horizon, God has it in control. Our goal is not to live in fear of what may come, but to live in fear of offending God. To live in fear of missing His plan and purpose for our life. So if you would just bear with me, I want to take you through the seven steps that Habakkuk went through in the course of his journey through this book as God shines streams of light through the darkness of what's going on. And we really begin, you may want to just, uh, if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, uh, if you saw my Bible, you would wonder how I can even read it because it's so marked up. Uh, you might want to mark these verses so that you can go back and find them later or possibly just jot them down. 
The first brilliant flash of light that comes through the darkness and the dimness of his time is found in chapter 1 and verse 12, where he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, O rock. You have marked them for correction. What he essentially comes to here is the realization that when he doesn't understand what God is doing, he needs to go back to the nature of who God is. Sometimes we just have to get back to the fact that we have to let God be God. And so he speaks of God from the standpoint of his eternal nature, of his holiness, and of the fact that he is the rock. And that goes back of course, in his mind, to Deuteronomy chapter 34, or 32, excuse me, where Moses four times identifies God as the rock of our salvation. And you'll remember that Paul picks up on this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, where he says, the rock that followed them was Christ. So he comes to that point where he decides, okay, God is God. I know he's eternal. I know he's holy. I know he is the God of our salvation. I'm going to have to learn to trust him. And then he goes on through some more complaints and difficulties. And then God speaks to him in chapter 2 and verse 4. And this is a second flash of light that comes through the darkness when God says, behold the proud, speaking of Chaldea as an empire, and of course leading Chaldea Nebuchadnezzar. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Faith doesn't always understand. Faith doesn't mean that you always have everything put together, everything figured out, all of the blocks in order or whatever you want to talk about. It doesn't mean that. It means I know God. And I know what God has done through Jesus Christ, and therefore my job is to live by faith. And as I pointed out, when we were at this passage, the Apostle Paul picked up on this so much that he uses it in Romans 1.17, Galatians chapter 3.11, and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. I take Paul to be the author of Hebrews. If you believe otherwise, it doesn't matter. It's quoted there in Hebrews 10 and verse 38. The just shall live by faith. Now, who are the just? The just are those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And what does God require of you and I? To live by faith. And it all leads us right back here to Habakkuk. And so he goes on in his journey of speaking woe to the Chaldeans now. He's pronouncing God's judgment on the Chaldeans, and he comes to chapter 2 and verse 14, and he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So imagine taking this step where you begin by saying, I know God, and I know His nature, I know something of His character, and that places on me a responsibility, and that is that I need to live by faith. And not only that, but I have some promises for the eternal future, and that is that the world is going to be flooded with the knowledge of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it were today? I fear we have a few hardships and difficulties to go through before that's the case. But this gave him something in the future that he can hold on to. So he's gone from the past. Who is God from eternity past? What is my responsibility to live by faith? I look forward and I have something to anticipate with the certainty that faith gives me that the knowledge of God is going to fill the world. 
He comes then down to chapter 2 and verse 20, and he says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And you know, sometimes we need to just, to put it bluntly, shut up in the presence of the Lord. Stop complaining. Stop whining. Stop making excuses. Stop begging. Stop pleading. Just sit in the presence of the Lord. Contemplate who he is. Contemplate the perfection of his plan. Let all the earth be silent. And I would suggest that, unfortunately, we probably are not silent enough when we come before the Lord. Sometimes when we pray, if we would take a little bit of time after we pray and listen, we might be amazed that we actually get an answer. Uh, people talk about God talking to them. I've never heard God's voice in an audible voice say, uh, Hey, you're going wrong here. You need to do this. But there is a very real sense when God the Holy Spirit speaks in your soul, you know that it's Him. Even sitting here this morning, I know that it happens because it happened to me many, many times growing up in the faith. And as even today, I go and I listen to other great speakers. And it's like you're sitting there and you're listening to the message. And it's just kind of like the message is for everyone. But then there comes that moment in the class, the message, whatever the study may be, where it seems as if God puts his finger right on your soul and says, this is for you. This is what I have to say. You may sit there the whole hour and that'll be the only thing, but that is the gem that God wanted to give to you that day. And we have to learn sometimes to be silent. He goes on then as he enters into chapter 3 and he enters into a prayer. It's actually a song, uh, a lament in a sense for all that's going to happen. But he says in chapter 3 and verse 2, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In other words, here we are sitting at our point of time in history. And you have revealed to us that you have a plan. And that plan takes in the whole scope of human existence from the beginning to the end. And what is that work? That work is a work of redemption. And it means that the focus of all of history is on the cross of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished there through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. And what does it mean for us in our particular time? Revive your work. And I would suggest to you that as bleak as things may appear and as dark as the storm clouds may be on our horizon, God is reviving His work even now. God is reaching people now that He could never reach at any other time. You know, sometimes we wonder, why does God heal this person and not another? Why does God deliver this people and not another people? Why is it that God sometimes pours out his blessing on an individual or a family or even a nation, and at other times he brings judgment and sorrow and affliction? Why does God do that? Is he just capricious? Is he just hit or miss? Is he just jumping here or there? No, he's working for his work. And have you ever stopped to think that there are some people who will never come to Christ without affliction? And there are some people who will never come to Christ unless they see His hand of blessing. And always and forever behind every work that He accomplishes, whether individual lives or the lives of entire nations, God is at work right now to save souls. Because every soul is precious to Him, and Christ died for every soul. 
I almost got distracted there. I was going to tell you a story, but I'm going to save it. Notice down in chapter 3 and verse 8, and it really links to verse 13. He says, you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation. In other words, while the judgment was happening, while God was unleashing the thunderbolts of His judgment, what was He really working for? He was working for the salvation of people. And you come up to verse 13, there in chapter 3, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. Here is a prophet looking 600 years into the future and realizing the Messiah is coming. The promise that runs, the scarlet cord, if you will, that runs all the way through Scripture from immediately after Adam and Eve sinned and God gave them the promise, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then as you go on through the story, then it becomes the seed of Abraham and God makes a promise to Abraham saying, in you and in your seed, all of the nations will be blessed. And actually, in the Hebrew, that's in the passive voice. All of the nations will bless themselves. Because all blessing from God really begins when we take advantage of what Jesus Christ has come. But that promised seed, that Savior, that Messiah promise runs all the way through the Old Testament. You can find the gospel in seed form in every Old Testament book. Here it is in Habakkuk as God works for the redemption of the souls of men. And then you drop down to the last section, and this is where we pick up this morning in verse 17. Here the prophet has come from fear and dread and terror all the way to rest and peace. I pointed out in our last session that the three words that are overlooked many times in the third chapter... The word selah, it occurs in verse 3, it occurs in verse 9, it occurs again at the end of verse 13. And the word selah is a musical pause with a spiritual meaning. It means pause and reflect and rest. And so he comes down to the point where he actually enters into that selah of God, that spiritual rest, as he says in verse 16, "...when I heard, my body trembled." My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled within myself. But now notice carefully that I might rest in the day of trouble. Could I suggest to you that if you tremble before God today, you'll find rest in the day of trouble? Our problem too often is that we don't tremble in His presence. We don't recognize His greatness. We don't humble ourselves under His power. And therefore, we fail to have victory when the trouble comes. Verse 17 through 19 is one of the most beautiful and sublime statements of faith that is found anywhere in the entire Bible. Here's what he says. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. My translation says deer's feet, but they're not deer, they're hinds. He will make me walk on my high, heel, uh, high hills, not high heels. Habakkuk did not walk... <laughs> It's 
high hills he's walking on. And then he concludes to the chief musician with my stringed instruments, which tells us that he was apparently a Levite. Then he wrote this song for the people of Israel to sing in the middle of their disaster. Is that amazing? The story that I almost got sidetracked on is I went to a conference in Zambia. And it was out in a kind of a remote area. There were people that got word that there was going to be a Bible conference probably a month, two months in advance, and people traveled long distances to come together and gather together. And it's very interesting how these people will come on foot, sometimes in ox carts, from far, far away, traveling for days to come and gather together, and they expect nothing to eat while they're there. Whatever little they may have to sustain them on their journey to get there, they're not expecting to be fed. Well, one of the things that we make a rule in all of our conferences, and I know that Fassel has picked up on this in Pakistan, is that when you hold a conference and you host the people of God, you treat them like royalty. You make them feel special because they are. And so we'll buy bags of grain and we'll buy a bull and they'll slaughter the bull. And here are people who rarely have meat in their diet and they come and they're eating steak. And they're being well fed. And there's no charge. They can't believe this. They go to other conferences in the big cities and they have to pay so much to get in. And they can't believe I can come for free. I'm given free food. I'm given a place to stay. And usually we try to send them away with a blanket or a set of clothes or something. And those people say we never thought anybody in the world would ever treat us like this. And I remember this one conference... As the conference ended, and there was an ox uh, cart road that ran off into the bush from the place where we had met, and I saw this little old lady walking along with her staff. And I said to the pastor that we were working with, how far does that lady have to go to reach her home? And he said, you see those mountains? And he pointed to a range of mountains. He said she came over those mountains. He said it took her a week to get here. It'll take her a week to get home. I said, how is she going to have food? What will she do for shelter? He said, the same as what she had coming here. She'll have nothing. She will painfully, slowly walk her way home, having come all that way because she had a desire to hear the Word of God. When we value God's Word that much, we enter into what Habakkuk, finally broke through in his mind to understand that there is peace and there is rest and there is joy in the presence and in the plan of God. Another little story. I love to tell these. I really tell them for my sake, for my benefit, because they refresh my memory about what God has done. We were in Nigeria, and I'm sure some of you have heard this story before, but so have I, so I always enjoy it. I hope you will. And we heard about a family that lived out in a remote area, and, and they had just come to Christ. And so a pastor that was working in the area said, let's go visit them and see how they're doing. So we traveled to the home of this family that was nothing more than a thatch roof. 
no sides on it, no beds. They slept in the dirt under the thatch roof. The lady had three pots and pans that I could see. As we came into the uh, area that they were living in, I saw a little five-year-old boy struggling with a big branch of wood that he was dragging in so that he, he was playing his part to bring in firewood for them to have fuel to cook with. Two other kids were out in a scraggly little garden. It had some yellowed stalks of corn, and they were pouring water from the stream trying to get these stalks of corn to grow so that they could have something to eat. And the woman came out to meet us. We greeted her. We heard the story of how her husband had gone to an evangelistic meeting. He heard that some people were getting together to hear a message, and he didn't understand what it was all about, but he went just to find out. He heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he went home to his family with such good news, full of joy, telling them, God sent His Son to die in our place. All our sins can be forgiven. We can receive the gift of eternal life. And no matter how hard life may be for us here and now, we have a kingdom in heaven to look forward to. And his wife and his children embraced that message. They were rejoicing. They were excited. They were happy. They were singing songs every evening. They would sit around and they would sing songs. And then the lady said as the days went by, she began to notice a gloom settling over her husband. And she didn't understand it. And so finally she asked him, husband, what's wrong? Why have you lost the joy of this marvelous message and the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus? And he said, because I keep thinking of the people over those mountains. Those people have never heard this message. He said, if I don't carry the message to them, how will they hear? And she said, husband, you must go. And she put together a little small packet of food for him to take, and he set off walking for a far mountain range that we could see in the distance. And he had been gone six months, and she had heard nothing from him. But she looked at us with a joy in her face that I cannot describe to you, a scrawny, literally the family looked like they were starving to death, and she looked in my face with eyes that were on fire. And she said, isn't it wonderful that God would choose my husband to go tell those people about the love of Jesus Christ? That, my friends, is a peace that passes human understanding. That is a joy that is free from being connected or linked or chained to anything that you have, anything that you want, anything around you. It's something that can only be contained within the human soul. And so Habakkuk comes to peace. He started the letter a believer, a prophet, apparently a Levite, a singer, and he had no peace and he had no joy. And he ends the letter being able to say, and if you just take the words that he writes here, what he's essentially saying is, if God devastates the entire nation and there are no flocks in the field and there are no cr crops uh, growing uh, in the, the gardens or the fields and there's nothing to eat and the nation is totally devastated, I will rejoice in the Lord. I wonder if you could say that this morning concerning the United States of America. 
I posted something online recently and I quoted these verses and I said, I don't care how much preparation you have made for what is coming. If you can't say this and say it with genuineness and sincerity, if you couldn't be stripped with everything you have and be standing there with nothing but your soul filled with this message, you're not ready. Because anything you have can be taken from you. But what you have in your soul is yours forever. Turn with me to Matthew 11 because I want to touch on a couple of passages that I think will bring this home to us. And in Matthew 11, we have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to a group of people. Earlier, back at the end of chapter 9, he had looked on this multitude that had been following him. And he encouraged his disciples to pray for them, to pray for the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out because he said these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered, they're torn, they're wounded, they're hurting. And then you come along as he continues to teach and you get to chapter 11 and he makes a promise that I know all of you are familiar with, but I, though we may be familiar with it, I wonder if we really know it. He says in verse 28, Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I wonder if you've ever noticed that there are two different rests being spoken of here. And there are two different ways of receiving that rest. And I use this as an illustration because this is encapsulated in two verses, the journey that Habakkuk had to make. You see, the verse rest is very simple. He says, if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if the wages of sin have worn you down and the burden of your guilt is too heavy, all he says is, come to me and I will give you rest. That's a gift. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is receive it as John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the power, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. God's grace holds out the gift. Our faith reaches up and lays hold of that gift, and we receive it, and it's ours forever. But there's a second rest. It's what the old Puritans and a lot of the uh, early scholars and divines referred to as that second rest. Notice verse 29, there's a condition. The only condition in verse 28 is come to me, but the condition in verse 29 is take my yoke upon you. Now, why in the world would you put a yoke? Unfortunately, we live in an age when people have never seen a yoke, don't know what a yoke does, don't know why you would put a yoke on in the first place. I had the advantage of growing up with a father who liked to do everything the hard way. Because we had a team of mules and we had a team of Belgian horses and he liked to plow fields with a team. He liked to cultivate fields with a team. And so I learned very early how to put the harness on the team, how to back the team up to the uh, wagon, how to hitch them up and how to drive them and so on and so forth. And there's one thing that team knew. The minute you put that collar on them, they were going to the barn to get fed, right? No, they were going to the field to work. 
You were putting the yoke on the animal. In Jesus' time, it was, of course, a wooden yoke, and I've seen those used all over the world as well. Take my yoke. Now, it's his yoke that we have to take, which means when we put it on our neck, who's in the other side? He is. And the idea is that we are being yoked together. Isn't it amazing that God made special provision in the Old Testament that you could not unequally yoke animals together? I find that so interesting. You are not to yoke a mule and an ox. You are not to yoke a mule and a horse. Why? Because they have different gates and they would be working in opposition to each other. But our Lord is so humble and condescending that he stoops down to where we are. And you may be here this morning and say, he wouldn't want me on the other side of the yoke because all I do is ruin the work. And that is because you don't understand his love, compassion, and mercy for you. Take my yoke on you, he says, and learn from me. The word learn from the verb monthano. It's the very word we get disciple from. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner and a follower. And when you're training a young animal to work in a yoke, you put that young animal with an experienced animal so that when you say gee or haw, or when you pull on the lines, the older animal understands where you're supposed to go and the young animal follows along and learns. And so the Lord Jesus, if I could put it in modern terms, puts his arm around our shoulder and says, come with me and I will teach you how to be useful in my father's plan. I'll teach you. Just come. Just be willing to take the yoke. Just become a serious student of my word, and we will begin a work together. And as I told the folks in the last session, God has a work for you to accomplish that no one else can do. The saddest thing for anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who receives the gift of eternal life, who has the hope of an eternal place in heaven, would be to arrive in the presence of Christ and have him say, Welcome home, child. Unfortunately, you failed to accomplish the work that I gave you to do. I had something for you because we're all going to see it. We're going to see what his plan was. He's going to reveal to us what we could have accomplished while we were here on this earth in service to our Lord and to our King. And we want to finish that work. But I want you to notice that he says that as we work with him, we will find a rest for our souls. This rest is not given. It's a rest that has to be discovered. And this is the rest the prophet Habakkuk gained. How can we lay hold of that rest? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll find out. For the folks that have been here earlier, I took you through the seven steps of Habakkuk coming into rest. And in our last session, we looked at Moses, and I showed you that there were seven steps that Moses took that led him into rest. And now the question is, all right, Habakkuk did it, Moses did it, what should I do? Well, once again, I'm glad you asked the question. You're asking all the right questions, because here it is in Hebrews chapter 4, if you'll follow me. 
Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, therefore, and therefore, of course, includes everything that he's covered in the first three chapters, and I don't have time to cover that except to say to you that he uses the Exodus generation as an entire generation of people who never entered into God's rest. They were saved, but unused. They were saved, but they missed the plan of God. They were saved, but they never made it into the promised land. And therefore, the author says in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should come short of it. I hope that I can strike a fear in you this morning of failing to enter his rest. We should fear. It's a genuine fear. It's a bona fide fear. It's one that we should all have. A fear of failing to accomplish the plan of God for our life. Of finding that place of effective service it also is a source of rest in our soul. Notice that he goes on in verse 2 and 3, and he says, For indeed, the gospel, the good news, was preached to us, as well as it was to them, the Exodus generation. But the word that they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. They didn't believe that God could lead them into the promised land. They didn't believe that he could defeat the giants. You'll remember how the spies were sent into the land. Twelve of them came back. Ten of them said, there are giants in the land. We can't take them. Joshua and Caleb said, we'll have no problem if God's on our side. Let's go take the land. And the others said, no, we can't do it. And God said, okay, fine. You're going to wander in the wilderness until you die. Could I suggest to you that there are many believers who wander from the moment of their salvation until the day of their death, and they never enter the promised land? What a tragedy. What a waste of the marvelous plan of God. So we should not only fear, but we should also realize that it's a simple thing. Simply believe the message. Notice that he says in verse 3, We who have believed do enter that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That Exodus generation could not enter it. We who believe can enter. It's a matter of faith. You know what you need? What do you need for the days ahead? Faith. That's what you need. You need real faith, genuine faith, mature faith. Bible-based faith, not hope-so faith, not make-believe faith. You know, I love it when we're all singing together and we're all exuberant and everything, but I often ask myself the question, will I be able to sing these songs of praise when my life is dark and difficult, when I have lost a loved one, when, when we see the, the suffering around us and it affects us, will I be able to sing then? Because you know what? That's when it's really going to count. So not only should we fear failure, not only should we enter by simple childlike faith, but as we go on at the end of verse 3 and 4, we find out that it's based on a finished work. Notice God said, they, the Exodus generation, are not going to enter my rest, even though the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Did you know that everything God intended to accomplish for you was finished from the foundation of the world? God had a plan for you before He spun the sun, sun into the sky, before the earth began to spin, before He created the 
Six days of creation we read of in Genesis. Isn't it interesting? Our Bible begins with the simple words, in the beginning, God, and the work was finished. Already finished. A plan you cannot fail to accomplish if you do it His way. How amazing is that? The finished work, of course, has a central focus in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 4 and says, He spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all His works. This is where we get the idea of the Sabbath. God did not rest because He was tired. God rested because His work was finished. God wants you and I to rest because the work, the plan that He has for us is already finished in His mind. It's already accomplished. I saw a movie years ago, maybe some of you have seen it, I think the name of it is Dangerous Minds, and it's about a school teacher. She comes out of the Marine Corps and goes into school teaching. She walks into a tough school in a uh, ghetto neighborhood, probably in New York somewhere, and the students are all rowdy and, you know, raising hell and everything else, and she walks in and she finally gets them to sit down. She says, I'm going to give all of you an A up front. They're all going, all right, no work, nothing to be done. We've already got an A. She said, you can't improve on it, but you can lose it. You can lose it if you don't live up to it. That's the plan of God for your life. You can't fail. He gave you everything up front. He's already given you victory. He's already given you blessing. He's already given you reward. We talk about, will there be any stars in my crown? My question is, will I have a crown? Because you know what? That crown was allotted to you, and it was reserved for you. Peter tells us this. All of the things that are reserved in heaven for those who believe... And you think of that storehouse in which God placed the reward for everything He intended to give you, and then as we fail, each little occurrence, each little incident in life, that reward is taken out, no longer available. That reward is taken out, no longer available. And we see our eternal inheritance diminishing as we fail to live up to the plan of God for our life. So we start by fearing failure. We move then to simplicity of simple childlike faith. Third, we recognize that it's based on the finished work. And if you drop down there to verse 5, he says again in this place, they will not enter my rest. This is a warning to all of us. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter... Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, here's David writing 1,500, 600 years later after the Exodus, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know what you have? Here's what you have today. You don't have yesterday, it's already gone. Whatever victory or failure is there, it's already gone. You don't have tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. We have today. What am I going to make of today? 
Today, if you hear His voice sitting right here, right now, with all your distractions and whatever you're going to do this afternoon and whatever you hope for the week and that new job that you want to get, that person you're interested in and you hope it clicks and, and something happens, let me tell you something. All of that is nothing but illusion. The question is, what are you going to do today? Because my friend, if you lose today and you lose tomorrow, you have already set yourself up to lose the third day, the next week, the next month, and on and on and on. What are you going to do today? That's the fourth thing we have to consider. And then the fifth, we need to realize that this Sabbath is not once a week on Saturday. This Sabbath is a daily Sabbath. So look at verse 9 and 10. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. The word rest there is sabbatismas. There remains a Sabbath for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has ceased from his own works as God did from his. We not only need to realize that it's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, but we need to realize we can't add to it. When I enter into, and hey, this is my battle every time I stand up in front of you, am I going to perform or am I going to surrender? It's very easy to perform. You can move people. I can move you to tears. I can sway you different directions. People practice the techniques to be able to manipulate a crowd. I'm not here to manipulate you. I want to surrender. I want to let God, the Holy Spirit, take my failing, futile, sinful self and get me out of the way and somehow use my mind and my mouth to convey an eternal message to your soul. That's all I'm here for. And it's a battle. And I know everyone, I know Nick knows it, any man who's ever stood up in front of a group faces that challenge every time. You're going to perform, you're going to surrender. Can you live in the moment-by-moment moment Sabbath? What does it mean? It means I'm resting right now in His promises, in His provision, in His finished work. Notice in verse 11 to 13, let us therefore be diligent. It's so important. It's so critical. We need to supply the only thing we can supply, which is diligence, which is strong inner motivation. I want it. I'm hungry for it. I have to have it. Let us be diligent, therefore, to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. You're going to be like the Exodus generation, or are you going to be like the ten spies or the two spies? There's your example. Every single one of us is going to stand in front of Jesus Christ and we're either going to be a Joshua and a Caleb or we're going to be the rest. They're not even named. You know why? There's something that people have not caught in the Old Testament and that is certain people's names are blotted out because they failed. Remember the story of Ruth? Remember how Ruth came back from the land bereaved of her husband? She comes back to Bethlehem. She has a kinsman redeemer that should stand up and defend her and, and take in her inheritance and take her in as a wife. And Boaz meets him at the gate because he's Boaz's older brother. And he says, hey, older brother, uh, Naomi has come back and we need to redeem her land according to the law of Moses. And he says, yeah, more land, more property, 
more fields, more crops, I'll do it. Boaz kept a little secret back, though. He said, oh, by the way, when you do that, you have to take Ruth the Moabite as your wife. The guy said, no, no. Not going to do that. Do you remember that man's name? Of course you don't, because he's not named. And when Boaz meets him in the gate... And he says, hey, friend, come over here. That's a gloss on what the Hebrew actually says. The Hebrew actually says, hey, Poloni Almoni, which means Mr. So-and-so. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, whose name got blotted out of the Old Testament, you will never be named in Scripture. Why? Because you failed the plan of God for your life. When the Scripture says, and God speaks and says, I'll blot his name out of my book, he's not talking about slaughtering the guy or taking away his salvation. He's saying he's not worthy to be named. Now think what it means when you read in Revelation chapter 3, that to him who is faithful, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Because there is a record being kept of your life, and some people's life is going to cover volumes, and some people's life is going to cover a sentence. They trusted Jesus Christ. That's it. And you know what? When we stand in the presence of the King, our record that is eternal recorded is going to be open for everyone to see. You know what I'd hate? I'd hate for my record to be. He traveled all over the world and gave the gospel. He spoke in a whole lot of churches, and all it was was a performance to try to win the approval of people, and it means nothing. That terrifies me. You know what the last step is in entering his rest? Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness. Someone was just talking to me during the break saying, I'm so weak, I'm such a failure, I'm ashamed of myself. You need to start seeing yourself as God sees you. Stop letting the world identify you. Stop letting the world pigeonhole you. If you are in Christ, you are a child of the King. You are a child of God. You are a new creature in Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Stop putting yourself down. And start believing that you are who He said you are. He says, our high priest was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. My identity is not my failure. My identity is His victory. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. When do we come boldly for the throne of grace? To obtain mercy and find grace to help. In other words, what this verse is saying is, at your worst, after you failed, when you feel like you're an inch tall, when you feel like you're crawling on the ground. Rise up and identify with the Lord Jesus Christ as one who is accepted in the Beloved and walk into the throne room with your head held high and say, I know there is cleansing. I know there is forgiveness. I know that there is provision made for me and I'm here to claim it. That's what humility before God really does.
Because you know why? Humility before God believes what He said about us. God's not impressed when we come cringing and crying and say, Oh God, I failed again. He knew you were going to fail before the world began. He's not sitting up there with His crown falling off going, What in the world happened here? When Jesus sat in the upper room and talked to Peter and said, Peter, three times tonight you're going to deny me. By the way, Peter blasphemed when he denied Christ because he swore on heaven on the name of God that he didn't know Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? Swearing on the name of God that you don't know God who's standing right in front of you. Jesus said, Peter, before the night's over, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And unfortunately, there's a chapter break there at the end of John 13. And so we stop reading and we pick our Bible up the next day and we pick up in John 14, 1, and we completely forget the connection. So let me show you the connection. Before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me, Peter, this very night. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house of many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return for you and receive you to myself so that where I am there you can be also. Have you ever connected that with the fact that Jesus just told Peter he was going to deny him? Don't let the chapter break rob you of the power of the truth. You might want to read John 14, the first four verses, the first six verses. You get down to verse 6, and what does he say? I am. It's not what you are. It's I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Get your eyes off yourself. Jesus is saying, look to me. You'll find the supply of everything you need. That's what we call victorious Christianity. Victorious Christians are not Christians who don't fail. Victorious Christians are Christians who never stay down. And they don't stay down because they actually believe the promises that are made. That Christ died for all our sins, that we have been cleansed, that we have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, for you have died, and your life is not what it is on this earth. Your life is hid with Christ in God. It'll change your whole perspective. Folks, I know. I'm the biggest failure I know. And these are lessons that I've had to learn over years of God letting me wallow in self-pity and wallow in guilt and wallow in shame until finally He broke through this thick skull of mine. You know, teachers sometimes have breakthroughs. My breakthroughs are when God breaks something through my thick skull. And I wake up and I go, I am who God says I am in Christ. I am accepted in the Beloved. I am as righteous as Christ Himself in the eyes of God the Father. And He will always see me that way. Yes, He'll discipline me when I fail. He'll correct me, but He always corrects me in love. He does it as a gracious, caring, heavenly Father. And therefore, I can stand up and dust myself off and start crawling before the world. Satan loves it when you and I are wallowing in shame. Loves it. You know why? Because as long as he can keep you wallowing in shame, you can't get back on the track running the race that God has set before you. Some of you may know my dad was an Olympic runner. Set six world records. 
ran in the 1936 Olympics. He was co-captain of the Olympic team with Jesse Owens that year. And my dad is on a Life magazine that I have from 1938 in a very important race in Los Angeles, and he got spiked and fell off the track. You know what athletes do today? They walk away. But the series of pictures shows him falling and then tumbling and then rolling and then getting back up with the other runners now a hundred yards ahead of him. And you know what he did? He got back on the track and finished the race. That's a champion. You don't walk off the track. You and I have a race that's been set before us, and the author of Hebrews, of course, picks that up in chapter 12 when he says, let us therefore run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking at ourselves and how weak and frail we are. Is that what your Bible says? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. He's already finished it. He's the one that set us off. My dad, as a kid, they were going to have a race, and so he said, well, I'll start all of you off. And they said, well, who's going to see us at the finish? And he said, I'll start all of you off, and then I'll run down and I'll catch you at the finish and see who wins. He was that fast. <laughs> Jesus Christ started you on your race, ran to the finish line. He's waiting there, and you know all he wants you to do is run into his arms at the end of the race. Just run into his arms. He's waiting there to reward you, and I pray that somehow some little snippet of anything I may have said during the course of this weekend and this study will challenge you to really believe the promises of God because what He has said of you can never change. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to watch Amazing Grace. I love this because it's in the Colosseum, the place where they thought they would end Christianity the place where they threw the Christians to the lions. They said, we'll wipe out Christianity in our generation. 2,000 years later, the Christians are in the Colosseum singing Amazing Grace, and all those people are gone. Let's run the race set before us. Let's enter into the rest God has for us. Let's be victorious through Christ. Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, your compassion, your grace, all the provisions that you make for us. Speak to each heart and soul gathered here this morning. Meet each of us in our need uh, at whatever point of life we may be in and just help us to pick up and continue to run down that track to the finish line for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Amazing grace How sweet the sound That said the wretch like me
heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the Blind, but now I see. 